0: Good afternoon, everyone. Here we are with another episode of Via Tutte, our character education podcast. As you know, we release one of these every month now, and it just seems that we're on a really stellar run of great people that we're speaking to. The feedback that we've had from the Jack Pinnell one has been brilliant, so thank you for that. And this month's episode is no exception. We speak to John Mundorf, Dr. John Mundorf, who is an award-winning National Board Certified 8th grade English teacher at the P.K. Young Developmental Research School, which is part of the University of Florida. So as well as teaching full-time, Dr. Mundolf also is a researcher. He's a, he's a PhD graduate. He works for Harvard University as well as the University of Florida. And his area of expertise is a concept called UDL, or Universal Design for Learning. He's leading the conversation in this area. He's a thought leader when it comes to design, it's a, he's a thought leader when it comes to arranging practices and pedagogy that are inclusive, that are integrated with technology, the latest technology, and he's there every day, day in, day out, doing what he does best, which is teaching students. We were so lucky to get him over to New Zealand during his summer holidays. He spent some time with the Westlake staff, he put on a conference for around 350 people, educators all over, all over New Zealand. The response to that has been overwhelming and we just knew that we couldn't let an opportunity pass him by without putting a podcast together where you could hopefully learn something from him too. So here it comes, this is Dr John Mundorf, this part of our Via Tute character education podcast, I hope you enjoy it. Right, so here we go again with another Via Tute, our character education podcast. Someone that our staff have spent the day with today is John Mundolf. John, we're so pleased to have you here. Um, the day we've had as a staff with you leading us on all things UDL has been absolutely brilliant. And I think now is a real opportune time to give some of our families and some of our students just a bit of a flavour about you as an educator, a little bit about your research, a little bit about UDL. Um, but more than anything, we're just so thankful that you're here. So it's it's great that you're in New Zealand and uh, it's great that we're we're sat down now. So thank you for being here. Um, And yeah, could you possibly just kick us off with, I know UDL is a term that maybe not a lot of parents will have heard or a lot of students, but from your perspective, what is it, why is it so important, how do you do it, Um, and maybe a little bit about how you kind of came into that field and that body of work
1: as well. Yeah, certainly. So it's a pleasure to be here. It really has been a a tremendous day, Um, totally impressed with the the caliber of, of thinking and just professionalism here at the school. Um, it really was. It was just a. It was a, a, Thank do, you. a delightful Thank day. You. Um, so yeah, I came upon the idea of universal design for learning as a practicing teacher. So yeah. I teach in the United States of America and the state of Florida. And um, you know, years back, I, I, I learned about universal design for learning. Um, really out of necessity, I was struggling to meet the needs of the learners in my classroom. Yeah. Um, and so, universal design for learning, it. it it's, its roots in architecture and product development. Mm. Um, essentially at the core of UDL is this idea that we want to design learning environments to be accessible to whomever um, resides within those environments. Yep. Uh, UDL itself is a framework that guides the development of flexible learning environments um, to respond and accommodate and meet the needs of the various learners that might be in that space. Yep. It's rooted in the neuroscience, uh, what we know about how brains operate and how brains work. It's also um, connected very much to uh, just learning sciences and what we know about um, learning and cognition in general. Um, But to be honest with you, it is the most appealing to me because it centers the student as the most important thing. And then it asks educators and the professionals that work within schools to think about how the environment is set up to be responsive to those learners. And sort of one thing we touched on today, which is probably relevant
0: for this, is, you know, the the, the variability within a classroom, mm-hmm. you know, the the amount of diverse learners, the all different types of things that are going on there. What what would a what would a day in John Mundorf's classroom, what would it look like, how would it feel? <laughs> um, you know, maybe for someone who was dyslexic mm-hmm. or dyspraxic or ADHD, as well as other students, how does it all fit? Because it sounds um it sounds great you know everyone's having this great experience but how does it actually feel for that boy sat in that room yeah. what's going on there
1: yeah I mean so it's a it's a great question and so I think at the beginning of the, the your question though is this idea of learner variability so one of the things that we talk about within UDL is moving beyond the idea that learners are good or bad right able or disabled yeah. and recognizing that within all groups of learners at all ages Um, learners are just are going to be really different in a number of different ways and UDL asks us to consider that um, as a a positive as a strength so how do we build upon those differences that exist within classrooms Um, the other thing that UDL asks us to think about too is is at least remind us that that variability uh, is predictable Mm. Uh, we should expect it we we know that learners are different and that's a good thing and so let's create spaces that work for them so I teach, uh, again, I teach in the United States. I teach eighth grade English, so that's 13 and 14 year olds. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a typical day in my classroom, uh, students would come in and we would talk, spend a little bit of time talking about the goal of the day, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we might say that we're going to spend some time that particular day looking at some informational text Mm -hmm. um, to practice some reading skills. Mm -hmm. And so we work really hard to establish what the goal is. Uh, We would then talk about what are the what do people know about the goal? What experience do they have with it? Kids might do a little bit of self-reflection to think about their understanding yes. of the goal. Yes. And at that point, then we'd have go into some time to do some practice. You know, let's practice. Let's, let's try this out. And so students might um, uh, take the text, a, a printed copy of the text, or you might yes. see a student grab a tablet and find it on the tablet. Mm-hmm. Or uh, maybe there's an audio version that we've created yes. that students have available availability to. So they would all work towards the goal, yes. but they would all do it in a different way. Right, We'd, okay. we, we would anticipate that learners uh, receive information differently. And so we're going to give them options for perception as they dig into that, yep. that content. Um, but one of the things about UDL, though, is that it, learning environments are more than just maybe an, an individual lesson, too. Hmm. So we want to think about the classroom environment itself. Yep. You know, do the kids feel as though it's a safe, uh, welcoming space for them. So we've got to work really hard to Uh, ensure that kids feel that the the room is for them or designed for them the topics that we talk about I wouldn't just generate those topics out of nowhere, we would talk as a class about what are the different topics that we might want to talk about within Mm -hmm. the class Um, and then kids also then in addition to having the options for how they might bring in the information or receive the information kids are also going to have options for how they demonstrate their understanding of it, so in the instance of a reading comprehension activity I might ask you know students might want to write a written response to help me understand that they knew what yep. they read yep. perhaps a student wants to have a conversation about it mm. um, so kids have some flexibility there and yep. and that's the idea is that we know that the rooms are going to need that flexibility and so in moving away from a one size fits all approach, yep. we allow for multiple avenues to be able to be successful
0: yeah and that that shift away from a one size mm-hmm. fits all is not the way it's being done so you it, mm-hmm. you kind of breaking down that barrier, that status quo, how how long has it taken you to get to the point where you are totally comfortable with, you know, one boy in the corner of the mm-hmm. classroom doing one thing? And how does it all come about in terms of you managing it and them managing themselves and kind of still delivering on that goal of the day, mm-hmm. but with so many different things going on, how does it all
1: come together? Yeah, I mean, so... it. it it can feel like a, a, in the a description of that, it can feel overwhelming and like right. almost chaotic. Yeah. There's yeah. too much going on. Yeah. How yeah. can we be learning? Um, so what I, the approach that I took that I suggest others do is, as once you identify what the goal is, you have a really clear goal. You make sure that you don't separate or you don't include the means. So we, we say we want students to know and be able to do this, um, but then we don't add on that we want them to do that by writing an essay or by giving a okay. speech. We give we leave that open. Yeah. And then what I did initially was, I thought, okay, what would be the one way that I would have them do it? And then what's another way that I could give them? So maybe initially there were just two options, right? Or maybe initially it was, I said these are the three things you can do. Um, I remember really clearly that I, uh, early on, worked um, to think about, you know, here's option one, here's option two that I'm providing. Um, Probably my second or third year learning about UDL, I started asking the students, what option would you suggest? So I would jokingly call it independent study. Yeah. So I would say, here are the two ideas that I have. Which one do you have? Yeah. And so there's a bit of co-constructing mm-hmm. that takes place yeah. in the classroom. Yeah. Um, as kids, we want kids to feel as though they are, they have a ownership in the classroom. Mm-hmm. They take pride in what happens in there. And when we give kids a say in what their learning looks like, yeah. it increases that level of engagement as it relates to their there's purpose in what they're doing. It increases motivation. Um, but then I also think it's important to remember, too, that in making choices and sometimes kids make poor choices. Yes. They yep. they make a selection. It doesn't isn't a good choice for them. And I think that's an important part of the process that we want kids as they're thinking about the process of learning and the act of learning. Yes. To really work to develop expertise. Yes. Not only in the content area that we're teaching, but also expertise within the process of learning. learning yeah. And the way that we become experts at learning is by trying new things yeah. and trying out different routes and figuring out Which route helps me achieve this particular goal at this moment in time? And obviously inherent in that trying different things
0: and getting, there is a a failure that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. How do your students, or how do you get your students to stay in the moment, stay in the process, stay doing it, even though there might be pitfalls along the way Mm -hmm. and failure and resilience, I presume, becomes Mm -hmm. a part of it and accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything kind of, neurologically, engagement-wise, that works for you and how you understand how those those brains kind of overcome mm-hmm. that failure? How yeah. does it all work?
1: So I think so much of it for me goes back to building relationships with students, uh, creating a culture of trust within the classroom yeah. where they recognize that it's an environment where they're encouraged to take risks and that you know failure in this instance isn't failure in the same way we think of failing a course, yes. right? Yeah. It, it's really just that first attempt that maybe didn't go well. Yeah. Um. We talk. I talk with my students quite a bit about the brain and the idea of neuroplasticity and that intelligence isn't fixed. Um. But we also talk about how when you try something new for the first time, you don't have strategies in place yep. for doing it. You don't have background knowledge yep. on it. Your Your brain is figuring it out, and the way that your brain figures it out is by doing and trying. Yeah. Yep. And so it can be challenging though, because in you know in public schools and in many places. A failure is oftentimes discouraged. You know we, yep. and and also given the age of the students that you know, bo- we both work with teenagers. You know, teenagers. The idea of failing in front of their peers, yes. that's that's troubling. That yep. can be challenging for yep. them. And so, uh, really rethinking um, and reconceptualizing the notion of um, failure uh, within the context of the class and trying new things. Um, it takes time. Yeah. It's about, it's a, like I said, it's about relationship building and building trust. I also think that it's about, goes back to clear goals, too. What is it that we're expecting kids to know and be able to do? Yeah. And then when those, are, we do have those successful moments. Um, and those successful moments don't have to be meeting the goal moments. Sometimes that successful moment is a really epic fail yeah. that we can talk about and celebrate together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's... It, it, it allows us to think of our room, our classroom, as this laboratory for, for experimentation yeah. with the content yeah. that we're attempting to learn. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that might—that's obviously for some, for some students more than others—a real mindset shift, oh, sure. mindset shift. Um, that it's actually okay. You know, if yeah. we fail here, it's—is it actually failure in conceptualizing yeah. that, which is a really important thing for them mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to come across? Yeah, with.
1: and it's hard for some students. It's it's a significant barrier. Yeah and i i wouldn't pretend to describe a scenario where everybody is perfectly comfortable with yep. it um and and that's okay because again that that notion of learner variability is learners are going to approach tasks in a variety of different ways yep. and given a student's history or where you know what their experiences have been in learning before mm-hmm. they might not feel like school is a place where they can take yep. these epic risks yep. and that has to be okay as yep. well. Yep. Um, so Those students can learn by watching their peers yep. take these risks. Um, the conversation of just what that looks like and how we make choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but some students, they prefer this, the, the safe route. Yep. Yep. Um, and that's okay too. Yep. The idea though is that we wanna make sure that, the reason why we wanna provide these options is that we know, and this is neurologically, but this is also based off of what we know just about cognition in general, is that when you create just a single pathway to whether it be uh, acquiring knowledge, expressing your understanding, or even a single pathway for engagement, it's just not gonna be mm-hmm. successful. Yeah. Um, sure, some students you know, might adjust or be flexible to be able to go along with whatever the teacher has said, but yeah. really and truly, brains need lots of different yeah. stimuli yeah. and in classrooms, to the best of our ability, we wanna try to do that. Yeah. Yeah, which is and so you've been a teacher for
0: years. Uh, 17, Seventeen years, years yeah. and and UDL hasn't always been a feature of mm-hmm. kind of your practice. Mm-hmm. So can you give me a little bit of a sense of how you know your resume is outstanding with Harvard on there mm-hmm. and the university for an associate professor and are we kind of is this something that we can all Get involved with and engage with as a 7, 8, 9, 10, mm-hmm. up to 18 year old, or is it reserved for a certain special few top academics like yeah, yourself no. who are the, the best and brightest yeah. minds? How does it all, how does it all, how can it be done? I yeah. think is what I'm saying, and, I mean, and, and maybe a little bit about your background as well. Sure,
1: yeah. So I came up upon UDL by chance. I was struggling to meet the needs of learners in my classroom. I attended an institute, a summer program at Harvard. Learned about UDL, it shifted my thinking about the way that we think about disability. Um, it shifted my thinking to think about disability as this contextual idea. It's not a, a, It doesn't reside in an individual, but rather it's the interaction between the individual and the environment. Um, it made me really think deeply about the way in which we were designing courses in classrooms and schools, um, almost as if we were designing for this mythical average student that didn't even exist. Um, and I, and I, what what continues to draw me to UDL is that it's not a program or a curriculum. Mm. There's not a seven-step program to it. It's a it's a framework for guiding the development of these flexible learning environments. And so, as learners change, as content changes, as schools change, the the framework is flexible, yeah. and it it allows for I don't know. I think of it not as an, a new initiative or a new idea, but rather the intersection of all. The really good initiatives that are out there yep. whether it be character education or multiple intelligences um, culturally responsive pedagogy they all live and reside within this UDL yep. framework yep. Um, the other part that I want to add on to as far as getting involved with it is the the UDL community I think by nature are a really inclusive accessible yep. group yep. I mean these are these are folks and educators from around the world yep. who desire, uh, 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 an, an idea of school yep. uh, where learning has no limits, and anybody that walks through the door is welcome. Yep. Anybody that welcomes through the door will find adequate challenge and support, mm. which of course is very aspirational. Yes, right? yeah, of course. But that, that's what we want to have. Yeah, that's what yeah, we want to work toward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what I what I would say too is that you know the UDL was conceptualized and originated in the states, um, but there are folks throughout the world, through, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, um, throughout South America, Um, a colleague of mine just got back from Africa, um, and really working to enact and explain UDL in all these different contexts, because the the challenges I face as a public school teacher in Florida and the United States really aren't all that different than what teachers in New Zealand face, and I felt that today during our workshop, just in listening to how... The faculty here responded to the ideas of UDL, it sounded a lot like my colleagues responding to UDL. And then as the faculty here really was working and trying to apply it to practice, the ideas that were emerging Mm -hmm. are are ideas that sound great and are wonderful that I don't think are unique New Zealand ideas. Or new unique, you know, US ideas. They're just really good. It's good teaching them. Yeah, own.
0: yeah, of course. Yeah, and and at the core, I mean, we've touched on it slightly. It'll be good to go a little bit deeper, maybe now. That feeling of belonging. Yeah. And feeling like you mentioned today, you you when you're in my classroom, you're at home. You yeah. can feel at home. Yeah. Um, how important is that for us for someone to come in and feel like they belong and they can express themselves? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the first part of my question. How important this is. And secondly, how do we get students, or in this case, our boys, to feel like they belong? Mm-hmm. What can we do? What can we not do? Yeah. Some of those barriers we discussed. Maybe um, I would just be keen for your take on that whole belonging piece. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important yeah. to character and a lot of things we talk about every day here.
1: Sure. No, I think it's it's, it's really cr- critical, especially you know I think about the context of your school here, but then also in my school, are you know we're not a neighbourhood school. We're at a a public developmental research school that's affiliated with the university, so we are nobody's zoned neighborhood school. And so no one goes there by default. They all come there as part of this lottery to mirror the state of Florida's demographics. So we have at the core of all of our work this really important task or mission to help students to understand that their experiences, while really valuable, might be different than the student that they're sitting next yeah. to. And that those other experiences have value as well. So how do we help kids to to recognize perspectives and different points of view, different ideas, different lived experiences? I think that to your question, though, why is belonging so important? I think I found myself initially thinking about that, that whole idea of if we want kids to take risks, they have to feel safe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And if I don't feel that I belong in a space, I'm not going to take risks. No. I'm not going to no. take chances. Yeah. I'm not going to put myself out there. Mm. Um, I also think the belonging piece is important because it allows schools have always had this um, this the I guess the goal of being this you know the great equalizer or mm. you know equity of opportunity yes. for all people. Yep. Yep. And you know with education anyone can succeed. Mm. I think built in that though we recognize that though there there are systems in place that that are, are barriers for some kids. Yep. And I think that it really interrogating some of those potentially oppressive systems, interrogating those within classrooms is important to help kids to see, you know, I belong in this room, but as I work out beyond this classroom to share my voice with the world, I have to be able to think about what are the different barriers that might be in place beyond this classroom too. Um, And I think where to start in any place, I think so much of it is building relationships with students, Mm who are our students, what do they care about, what, are their, what do they value, um, what are their lived experiences. Yep. Um, we talk a lot in my classroom as we read text, we, read, uh, we do a literary nonfiction unit where we read about people's experiences. Yep. And we use those texts to investigate this question of what does a person's lived experience reveal about a larger issue in the world? Uh, because we might not have experienced maybe a larger societal issue, but in reading about somebody else's experience that's different than our own, we might see or uh, uh, something may be revealed that, of course, has always been there, yep. but for us, it was covered up. Yep. And so we do that as a way to interact with literature and to interact with text, but then also, as we get to know our friends in our classroom that have different lived experiences, yep. um, I guess, you know, valuing stories and hearing each other's stories is, yeah. is critical it's, it's crucial, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And, and very much so here as well, and we spoke a little bit about cultural mm-hmm. identity and pedagogy and things, which is really important mm-hmm. to what we do. With that in mind, could you just maybe shed a little bit of light on some of the guiding principles that really bring this UDL experience to the fore yeah. um, across the whole range of things that we're talking about? Yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. So the idea that the UDL, UDL guides the development of these flexible learning environments where we know learners that are highly variable reside and, and seek to learn. And so because learners are highly variable, we recognize that a well-designed environment should um, seek to engage learners in a variety of different ways. Yeah. So the first principle of UDL is that we want to provide multiple means of engagement. Yeah. We recognize that in any learning environment, in any age, learners are going to vary in how they bring information into their heads, how they receive information. Yeah. So because we know that variability exists, we want to provide multiple means of representation. And then last but not least, the third you know, network or learning network that we think a lot about within UDL um, is what we think of as the strategic network. Um, and this is because we know that learners vary in how they uh, make sense of the world and how they organize their thinking and how they express those thoughts with the world. And so learners are really different in how they do that. So yep. we want to make sure that learners have a variety of different ways to take action and express themselves in the world. Um, so three main principles. Um, and then the goal, of course, is that we provide these three main principles because we hope to develop um, what we in UDL talk about as expert learners. Okay. Right. We want learners to, of course, know lots of content. We want them to learn yep. about math and reading and science and history. But we also want learners, as they go through the halls of all of our institutions, yep. that when they exit those buildings, they have an expertise in how they learn. Yep. Um, and so what that means is that From a UDL perspective, an expert learner is a learner that's purposeful and motivated, resourceful and knowledgeable, and strategic and goal-directed. So all of those principles seek to develop environments where we're cultivating those areas of learning expertise. Yeah, fantastic.
0: And and it's kind of on that as well. I mean, we've spoken a little bit about the brain and Mm -hmm. neuroplasticity. Um, Could you just give a, you know, for any students listening who may not fully understand quite what's going on in their heads at the moment with and it's a little bit hormonal as yeah, well and yeah. there's a, could you just give a really brief snapshot of the different parts of the brain what they're doing and why it's so important to get some of the effective parts right and yeah. the prefrontal cortex yeah
1: absolutely so i mean yeah. your brain is this amazing part of you um and especially the teenage brain it's in this state of flux and change um which is how brains go, they develop. Um, so one of the things that's really cool about the brain um, is that um, it's constantly changing, right? So uh, there's a myth out there that we only use a small percentage of our brain, which isn't true. We use a lot of our brain. Um, and everybody's brain makes these connections to things that they know or that they've experienced. Um, and neuroscientists estimate that those connections number in the trillions, right. you know, 100 trillion connections are within this connectome. But what's really cool, too, is that my connectome is different than your connectome. Yep. Yep. And nobody has the same connectome. So the way in which we're learning it for everybody, it's just slightly different. Yep. Um, the other thing that's really cool is for a really long time, people believed that intelligence or your ability, your, your ability to think, right, was, was fixed. You had a certain level of intelligence mm-hmm. and there yep. was nothing you could do about it. Yeah. And uh, the research from the neuroscientists is pretty clear that that's not the case at all, mm-hmm. that your brain is constantly changing, it's growing, and so gone are the days where we think of somebody as not being good at reading or not being good at math, right? It's just, it's more of you're not good at it yet. Yep. And so it's, it's allowing yourself the time and space to say, this is challenging for me, but I know that there's a way that I can do yep. it. And the neuroscience reveals that your brain can learn, yep. and your brain can learn just about anything. Um, And then the other piece that I think is really important, too, especially for students to hear, but for everybody to hear, is one of the most important things about learning is what you already know. Mm -hmm. And so everybody comes into a learning environment knowing something. And so building upon your prior knowledge is really critical in growing that brain and growing your ability to think and think deeply and learn about new topics. And so whatever that prior knowledge is that Mm -hmm. you have, Whatever it is, even if you don't think it's connected to school yep. at all, it's really important. Yep. And so it's important that when you know things, that you you value that, you center that. But then you remember that that that's not fixed in cement, yep. right? Yep. That there's still going to be room to grow. Yeah, and that open-mindedness to actually yeah, we can that 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 word at the end of the sentence
0: yet mm-hmm. I can't do this mm-hmm. versus I can't do this yet mm-hmm. is such a powerful way of mm-hmm. reframing. Mm-hmm. Challenges that people are having, you know in the classroom outside the classroom in their lives It's mm-hmm. a really it's a really powerful just to put one word on the end of a sentence mm-hmm. can change a, a mindset a simple
1: and especially as it relates to you know your ability to regulate yourself as a learner, right? So the self-regulation is a is a higher level neurological process yes, yeah. that I, I you have goals and you're working towards particular goals um, but it's really easy everybody feels this way students adults everybody Sometimes things get hard Mm -hmm. and it's easy to say, this is too hard. I can't do it. Um, And so we all have moments like that and that's fine. um, But it's important to know that the reason why you can't do it isn't because your brain isn't capable of doing it. It's just that you haven't acquired the strategies and skills to be able to do it yet. (laughs) And so there are of course moments where you turn it off and you say, I'm not doing it today and that's all right. But turning it off or saying I'm not going to do it isn't because you're not capable of doing it. Um, It's just that it's, it's not in place just yet. And so, um, but it is—it's that open-mindedness that's so important, um, and it's so interesting, as you said, open-mindedness. It made me think a lot about how how critical it is not only to be open-minded about our own work and our own development, but um, today we talked about it in the session how how important it is to to learn from one another. Yep. That I can come in as the quote-unquote expert coming in from the outside, and I share some knowledge with the group, yep. and two people might receive that information quite differently. Those two individuals having a chance to share with each other is really important for that brain development because it's new ideas and new ways of thinking about it that maybe you might not have thought about before. So it's important to listen to your teachers, students. you got to listen to your teachers.
0: (laughs) Thank you for saying that. But it's also really important,
1: (laughs) students, for you to talk with one another, right? And how do you make sense of the information that you're learning in your class,
0: and, and that level of reciprocity mm-hmm. and that, that sharing of knowledge is yeah. such, like you've said, such an important thing. Yeah, yeah. the co-construction. And yeah, it yeah. can't be yeah. dismissed as just having yeah. an idle conversation yeah. about something. Now it's yeah. so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And obviously we're nearly coming to an end, John. This has been fascinating just getting really inside uh-huh. your mind and telling us about mm-hmm. our own brains. But just with the benefit of hindsight, you know, if, if you put yourself back in a classroom uh-huh. now, as our, our boys here are uh-huh. age thirteen to eighteen. So, if we say fifteen-year-old John Mcnulty, uh-huh. what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? What wisdom would you impart to a, a Kiwi or a yeah. New Zealand Westlaker teenage boy? Yeah, fifteen. I mean, fifteen. In a classroom.
1: A, fifteen, such an exciting time as you hustle between sports and music and friends and developing those relationships. I think a couple of things that I would advice I would give is first of all is that everybody's brain is developing in different ways, yeah. and so there's always an effort to try to compare yourself to somebody else. Um, you know your your competition is you, right? Yeah. You know you're you're looking at your own growth as compared to how you've done before done in the past. Um, and other people are going to progress at their own rates as well, and that's yeah. important to remember. I also think that I would. I don't think I realized when I was 15 how what I knew, how important it was. Um, And so if you're interested in a particular sport or if there's an instrument that you play or a a topic that you're really, really passionately curious about, go for it. Like, go overboard with it. Really dig in. Um, I had a student years ago who loved the weather. Yeah. And maybe a little too much, like a little overboard loved the weather. But as he grew up, he continued to focus on that passion, Mm. and he just graduated with a master's degree in meteorology, and he's now working for the National Weather Service in the United States, and he's chasing tornadoes around. And so I think it's important, sometimes in school we get hyper-focused on what we're not good at. I think that if I could give my 15-year-old self advice, I would say, sure, there's going to be things you're not going to be good at, but really dig into the stuff that you are good at. because. If you're good at it, build upon those strengths. And that,
0: yeah, that strength-based approach, mm-hmm. and and that permeates the other things as well. Mm-hmm. So you know that willingness to dig in on the things you really love can
1: mm-hmm.
0: open it up to a lot of other things. I absolutely, suppose. absolutely, and, and a lot of fun as well. It's just,
1: tons it's of fun. It's fun
0: to be really yeah. deep dive into something that you're
1: really invested in. And well, um, when we told the teachers that today, and I felt like this is important too, is that UDL designing learning environments like this it's fun yeah it's fun for the teacher it's fun for the learner and when learning isn't fun it becomes work yeah and sure there's times that we have to do work and not all learning can be the most joyful experience ever of course of course but whenever we can if we can bring joy joy into the process of learning that's where we want to be yeah
0: yeah and that i think what a way to finish with a bit of joy absolutely yeah yeah. we're so lucky that that we've got you in New Zealand I think mm-hmm. it's really unique that you're here we're going to speak to or you're going to speak to 350 people from around mm-hmm. New Zealand tomorrow at a seminar so we're very very thankful to to have you here we've spoke with some very bright able minds on this podcast mm-hmm. over the last few months and, but this has been absolutely no Thank different you. Appreciate to have it. you here given up your time to talk to us and articulate those points yeah. so emotively but also with such you know research mm-hmm. background and and being a practicing mm-hmm. teacher i think is very very special and mm-hmm. there's not very many people like you yeah. and we're lucky yeah. that you're, you're here today well, so thank you so much thank you very That's, much you've got yeah. to come back to new zealand we want you back sign so, me up um, <laughs> brilliant, <laughs> sign me brilliant. Up. so we'll say goodbye for now um yep yeah, that was dr john Mundoff and we will get this online soon thank right. you very much thank you